Skin care companies make millions trying to cover, heal, and prevent blemishes. But what about those invisible defects, those moral flaws that we try to hide? The ugliness they produce is far more serious than any acne on our face. Dave Wurtson begins today with some observations about the industry of skincare products and then takes us into the conclusion of Jude for some internal moral care we dare not ignore. Now, you know, I know like Mary and the ladies, and as I look around the room, I know a lot of you ladies are very much into skincare products, and, and as husbands, sometimes we really appreciate it, so we're willing to put out the money to be able to provide for you in that way. And so everyone knows the girls are really concerned about blemishes on their faces, and also everyone knows that teenagers are concerned about that. And I remember when I was a teenager and suddenly strange things started happening and I became very concerned about what was happening to my face. But one of the things that was really unusual about this article is that it was talking about the, the big industry among executives that it's developing and how a lot of the skincare companies are starting to open up a whole new market among these executives. And it just struck me that in this video culture, where the physical and the external and the way we look is so important that billions of dollars are spent on, on skincare products around the world, I couldn't help but think about what about blemishes morally? Are we as concerned about moral blemishes in our lives? And one of the things that we've been learning in the book of Jude is that the New Testament is very concerned about moral blemishes. In a church family like ours, the danger is not that you're a part of a legalistic church. In a church like ours, it's not the danger that you're going to believe that by coming to church every Sunday, by doing exactly what I tell you in a legal way as I give you about four or five rules to follow, our church does really not have the danger so much that you'll be caught up into legalistically obeying all these things. We're obviously not caught up in, into legally thinking you need to dress a certain way or you need to go to church at a certain time. In other words, that's really not the danger of Midlothian Bible Church. Legalism is not really something I think that Satan is using at the present time to deceive our church. But in a church like ours, where we emphasize relationship, where we emphasize God's grace, the idea that you do not become acceptable to God by giving money, by regular church attendance, by, by a list of rules and regulations. We teach strongly that you're saved by grace, that you're saved by putting your faith into a person. Now, whenever grace is taught, and grace needs to be taught, because it's the heartbeat of the entire Scripture, even the Old Testament, we have a big stress upon grace. But when grace is taught, there's always the danger, not so much of legalism, but of libertinism, of license. And that's the idea that I'm saved by grace. I'm in the family of God. It's all been done by Christ. Therefore, I can live any way I want to live. Now, the Apostle Paul, throughout his ministry, had to wrestle with the fact that his teaching could be misinterpreted and it could cause some people to
to begin to live a life of license. One of the major discussions in the book of Romans is on why grace should not lead to license. In the book of Jude, the apostle Jude, the Lord's half-brother, is focusing on a great danger in a church he was running to. The church he was running to had among their leaders some individuals that were telling the church family, you don't need to be concerned about morality. It doesn't make any difference whether you live a pure life sexually. It doesn't make any difference whether you are morally pure because you're saved by grace. And this was being taught not just among some riffraff on the outside, but it was being taught by some of the leaders in the church. Now in one sense I'm shocked that that would happen. That here was a church that was founded by apostles. We know from the book of Jude that the group that he was running to was founded by apostles. It's shocking to me to realize that in this church there were those that were openly living immorally. They were recognized leaders in the church and they were beginning to infect others. It's shocking to see that, but it's also encouraging. Because I think sometimes, you know, I think it's easy for some of you, and for myself included, we, we can look around and see what begins to happen in a local church. To begin to see certain ones that fall into sin. Even church leaders that fall into sin. And we can throw up our hands in exasperation, and we can say, where is God? I mean, maybe this thing isn't real. I mean, if it was real, how could this ever happen to God's people? And I think it's important for us to recognize that right in the first century, already church families had a wrestle with this terrible battle, with sinfulness, with immorality, with leaders that would fall into sin and begin to teach false doctrine. Now, Satan's going to try to cause some of you to say, because of all these inconsistencies, as I really start to get involved with believers, I realize that some terrible things happen. One of the things that Satan's going to tempt you to do is to say, well, it just doesn't work. It's just not real. These Christians are worse than my unbelieving friends at times. And a lot of you are going to be tempted to move away from the fellowship with God's people. Now, the Apostle Jude said, do not do that. Do not do that. Because in every group, as he closes this book, he's going to tell you, in every group, there's still a group that's listening. There's still a group that when they come on Sunday morning and they hear the Word of God taught, they're not asleep. They're awake spiritually. They're a group that's struggling through the power of Christ to overcome immorality, to overcome besetting sin, to keep growing in the Lord. And the Apostle Jude, as we finish the book, is focusing on that group and trying to warn them about not taking these false teachers lightly, about not joining with them. And so he begins in verses 17 through 19 to talk to us about the fact that the very first reason that you should not be discouraged, you should not join this group that's slipping away, you should not feel that it's out of the control of God, because the Lord himself, through the apostles, already predicted that there would be these kind of individuals in his family who were not really part of his family. Look at verses 17 and following. It says, but dear friends. Now that's the transition phrase in this book. If you'll notice in verse 3, it says, dear friends. And that introduces a section which we've been studying, which goes back and shows you that it's already been predicted in the Old Testament that there would be Balaam's, 
there would be Cain's, there would be the wilderness generation, there would be these individuals that turn away from obedience and faith in God. So all the way until we get to verse 16, we are focusing on the Old Testament. You remember, those of you that were able to be with us, we studied about some of these Old Testament examples of those who slipped away. Now verse 17 changes gear. And Jude brings this right up into his present day. And he says, not only the Old Testament prophets predicted there would be this falling away, there would be teachers that would teach licentious living and libertinism, but he also said that the apostles themselves, the founders of your church, taught you this as well. Look at it. But dear friends or dear loved ones, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Now this would be the foundation of the church. It would include the 11 disciples that walked with Jesus during his ministry on earth. It would also include men like the Apostle Paul, for sure. And very possibly it would also include men like James, possibly Barnabas, possibly even Jude, although Jude himself never refers to himself as an apostle. But what we're dealing with is these foundational witnesses to the reality of Christ, especially the reality of his resurrection. Now these apostles, when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, scattered out all over the then known world. And they were the ones responsible for taking the gospel to Jude's readers. And they expressed to them how Christ died for them, how he rose again. And Jude is also telling his readers and reminding them that these apostles also spoke to them about the dangers of libertinism that he's been exposing in this book. He said, they taught you, in verse 18, in the last times there will be scoffers, men who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. The very first thing I want to call your attention to this morning as we look at this apostolic warning is Jude's point is this. You all, and myself included, should be saved because it's been predicted. And Jude's idea is this. It's already been predicted in God's word that there would be individuals who would live just for their own physical desires, who would follow their own natural instincts, who would become, in a way, almost morally just like beasts, like animals. And what the apostles predicted is that in the last days, there would be these scoffers. In other words, it didn't catch the word of God by surprise when certain religious leaders start to say, forget about the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments. You don't need to worry about the Ten Commandments. You know, you can forget all about them. It's not important whether or not you are pure in your marriage. You don't need to worry about adultery. You don't need to worry about stealing. You don't need to worry about lying. You've been upgraded above all of those things. You see, these false teachers caught Joseph Fletcher, who taught situational ethics. I mean, they were 2,000 years ago. They were saying what Joseph Fletcher taught about forgetting about moral absolutes and living a pure life because there's a higher principle, the law of love. Only he never defined what love was. He never focused on the fact that love is the expression of the character of God. And love will never act inconsistently with the character of God. 
But rather than this being a new development in the modern world, in the book of Jude, way back in the first century, false teachers were teaching believers, trying to seduce them away from moral living, telling them, oh, the Old Testament's passé. You don't have anything you can learn from those examples. You don't need to worry about God. God is a God of love. How many times have you heard that in your own life? In fact, even when I was teaching the book of Genesis a couple weeks ago, finishing out the book, the great judgments of the book of Genesis, this morning as we gather together, we worship a God who came to the end of himself with a pre-flood generation. He looked down upon the human race and every one of their thoughts was only evil continually. And God is a righteous, holy God, and he brought the flood. And you know, it's agonizing to think about hundreds of thousands of people that died because of sin. And then you start over again after the flood, and the very first thing that the new Adam does, Noah's a new Adam, the very first thing he does is he gets drunk and he's lying naked in his tent. What a way to start out the human race again. And then Ham, his son, mocks his father. There's rebellion against his father. The nations are supposed to scatter out, but they don't scatter out. And we're thrown into this, into this exposure of how evil mankind can be. In the book of Genesis, we develop a little bit further. And Lot, Abram's nephew, goes to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And a stranger can't even spend the night in the park. Because if he spends the night in the park, in the open air, he'll be molested. He'll be, he'll be homosexually abused. And Sodom and Gomorrah was so evil that God devoured them with fire from heaven and eradicated those cities off planet Earth. And we have these reminders of judgment that God is a righteous, holy God. Now what the idea of this prediction is, is that the apostles have already told us that in the last days, there's going to be preachers that tell you to forget about the Bible. There's going to be religious leaders that say that morality isn't that important. It doesn't make any difference whether you live a pure life or not. We have grown up above all of those things. The apostles have already warned us. They've already told us those scoffers who would mock the things of God are going to come. And Jude's point is this. The scoffers in the Old Testament, it's we've already seen what will happen to them. We've already seen what happens when you fall into the hands of an angry God. There is fearsome, debilitating judgment. And so Jude's point is this. If we've already seen what God will do to those who turn away from him and do not obey him, then it's foolish to ever join with a group that's going to end up like that. The point is this, it's like a wise father who's saying, I don't want you to run with that group, I don't want you to run with that crowd, because what they're doing is wrong, and it's under the judgment of God, and it's dangerous to be in an area where God will judge. It's like being in a high explosive area, like at the plants at Gifford Hill and TXI, they have these signs, you know, beware, danger, explosive area. And if you were out there in a quarry where, when TXI was going to blow, it would be a foolish thing to go walking down that quarry just nonchalantly and see all these signs warning, danger, explosive area. It'd be foolish to walk out there. And that's the point of the book of Jude. He's putting up a great big warning sign and he's saying this is a dangerous area. 
This is an explosive area. And so when a teenager starts to, to feel his oats and starts to rebel against the things of God and begin to say, well, I'm not sure I really want to live that way, Judas is saying, watch out. It's an explosive area. God judges immorality. It's wrong. It'll blow up in your face. And all these examples from the Old Testament have already been given to us. And I would just say to you, I plead with each one of us as believers. You know the message well. But please listen. It's so important for us to ask ourselves, what is God really like? The book of Jude is not a real, in one way, what we've done so far in the book of Jude is not a comforting message. In fact, there's a lot of fear in it. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Jesus died for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be delivered from sin, not so that we could gleefully revel in it. It's very important for us, every one of us, to be daily depending upon the Holy Spirit, not upon our own strength, so that we can live a pure and holy life. Our society in the secular world laughs at what God judges. You have it in the business world, you have it in the, in the media, you have it in music. And it's like we live in this atmosphere so much that a lot of us forget about how much God hates immorality. And these false teachers were saying, don't worry about it. It's really not that important. And it's easy to start to feel that in your own life. Well, you know, standards have changed. Our society is different. It's easy as a mom and dad to say, well, things are really quite different now than they were when I was growing up. And what I want to express to you is study Jude carefully. Because Jude warns us about the kinds of areas that are dangerous, that are explosive. And so the point is this. If we've already had it predicted to us, what will happen to this group of scoffers, this group of mockers? Then don't join with them because you've already been able to see where they'll end up. Now in verses 20 through 23, we have an ounce of prevention. In verses 17 through 19, Jude warns us about these groups who live by their animal instincts, that live just by their own desires. But in verse 20 and following, he talks about some very positive things that we can do to overcome this kind of false teaching. Once again, we have our transition phrase, but you, dear friends. Then he says this, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's number one. Number two, pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, 3, keep yourself in God's love and 4, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now those, those simple verses, just two verses, are verses that are easy to, to skip over and just to kind of read them quickly. But those verses point out to us four of the foundational New Testament principles for living a healthy spiritual life today for not being seduced by false teaching let's look at the first one he says first of all dear friends build yourselves up in your most holy faith now a lot of us think about faith just in the past tense how many of you if you're going to give a word of testimony you will say when i was a little boy my mom and dad presented the gospel to me and i remember when i realized that christ died on the cross for my sins i realized that he rose again from the dead and i remember depending upon jesus christ for eternal life. Some of you remember a moment like that. Some of you were adults when that happened. 
In fact, when at Word of Life, where I was raised, we would often have kids give a testimony. I was born the first time in 1949, at a very early age, a lot of the kids would add. And they would add foolish things like, I was born in the hospital so I'd be close to my mother. And they would go on and on with these kind of testimonies. And they would say, now I was born the first time like that, I was born the second time, and they would talk about the time that they believed in the Son of God. In churches like ours, that stress the importance of being born again, which we need to do. It's a heartbeat message of the New Testament. But we tend to think of faith in the past. You talk about a time when I believed. Now that's biblical. You should think about a time when you believe. Some of you that were raised in Baptist circles, there's a big stress upon that. There was that time when you believed. And it was a past tense. And a lot of you will associate it, well, that was a time when I was baptized, or that was the time when I, was, when, I was, when I joined the church, or that was the time the pastor spoke to me. Now, I want to make something very clear about this. Talking to a pastor, getting baptized in water, walking an aisle, anything like that, will not save you as an action. You need to ask yourself very, very, in the depths of your heart, it's very important, you need to ask yourself, did I meet a person at that time? You see, faith is not faith in the Southern Baptist Convention or in the Independent Bible Church Movement or in Dallas Seminary. Faith is not even in what I say. It doesn't make that much difference what I say. Some of what I teach you is not accurate to the Word of God because I'm not inspired. The only validity that I have is if I point you to an honest-to-goodness Savior who's really there. You see, whether or not I believe in Him this morning does not change the reality. Whether or not you as a teenager are responding to Him, whether or not you as mom and dad are awake, excited to worship Him today, whether or not we really are entering into that reality does not change the reality. I want you to realize from the bottom of my heart Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Scripture, is really there. Historically, He shed His blood so that we could be saved. That's what it took to overcome immorality. He really did rise again from the dead. Now, what is faith? I've explained it to you many times. Faith, you might say, is, is looking at Him, though you can't see Him. Looking at Him with your heart. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Those of you that are saved, you remember. You know, might not remember the exact time. But you remember a time, you know, when the Holy Spirit was moving in your heart and it moved you. The Holy Spirit moved you to say, yes, I believe it's real. Yes, I believe the Savior did that. Jesus Christ isn't just a cuss word. Jesus Christ is not someone that you just use as a religious symbol. Jesus Christ is not just someone we talk about at a wedding. Jesus Christ is not just somebody we talk about at a funeral. But Jesus Christ is the honest-to-goodness living Savior. He's alive. And I need someone to get me to heaven. I need someone that has the power to cause me to be born into God's family. And belief is grabbing hold, you might say symbolically, of the hand of Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to trust you. Just like a little child sometimes has to say to his, you know, when his dad says to jump, when a little boy is up on a counter, and the daddy says, trust me, son, you can depend upon me. And the little kid jumps right into his father's arms. That's faith. Now, there is that past tense faith 
When I was five years old, that faith was born in my heart and life. But brothers and sisters, the New Testament does not just talk about past tense faith. The book of Jude is not just talking about past tense faith. The book of Jude is talking about present tense faith. It's very important that we be built up in the faith. As we're here today, this, the, one of the major purposes we should be here is we should be built up in the faith. In fact, one of the things that happens as we preach and as we teach, I found the Holy Spirit uses that to build up our faith. Have you ever had someone who just rehearses their testimony and they tell how they were born again and you listen and it causes your own faith to grow? How many of you ever had that happen? You know, you were in a service and maybe you've been away from it for a while and you're in a sharing time and people start sharing how they came to know the Lord and what the Lord means to them. And you find your heart starts to beat with them and, and your faith is strengthened. Have you ever had the opposite? Have you ever found that at times your faith is weak? Have you ever found at times that there's great doubts in your life? I have. So have you. And that's why it's so important that we're in this together. Some of you say, well, Dave, why should I be here today? Why is it important to gather with God's people? You know why it's important? Because we need you here. We really need you here. You know what? If none of you are here today, my faith would be greatly weakened. That's true. As I look around the room, your very presence encourages my faith. Because I realize in the midst of this great big secular world where the name of Jesus is used a lot more often as a cuss word than it is it's used as a name of salvation at times, where a lot of the world just lives for immorality, they just live for their instinctual desires, you are a group of people that are struggling in the power of the Spirit to become everything God wants you to be. And that encourages my faith. There's tremendous building up in the presence of believers together. And that's what Jude is talking about. Jude is saying we need to devote ourselves to building up one another's faith. And there's tremendous power in notes of encouragement. There's tremendous power in going out to lunch when someone's faith is wavering and trying to encourage them. One of the things I want us to enter into as a church family is for every one of you to realize that we're in this together. We're not an institution. We're not an organization. We are a family. And we desperately need one another to encourage, to build up, to strengthen one another's faith. Faith is not just a past tense, tense thing. It is a reality in our life that is growing and growing and growing. And I found in my own life, brothers and sisters, my faith is not just my personal feeling. I think it's very important for you to understand that what Jude is talking about here is not just a personal emotion. It's not just a certain feeling that I have. In fact, I found in some of the darkest moments when it's very difficult to believe, when I'm asking all kinds of questions and I don't have the answers, that I find that there's a conviction deep within my heart that's much bigger than Dave Wurtson. That's the reality of the Spirit generating faith in our life. And as we open our hearts to Him, as we're honest with Him, as we allow Him to keep working in our life, our faith grows. I want to ask you, do you believe more in Jesus now 
than you did when you were saved? Are you more committed to Him? You know a whole lot more about Him than you did when you were saved. But are you committed to Him more? Mom and Dad? Mom? Do you believe in Him more? Are you built up in Him more? You say, well, Dave, you know, the church just isn't like it used to be. And some of the people have let me down. Yeah, they have. The good old days will never be back here again because we always forget the things that were negative. Remember the positive things. And if we start to get our eyes on other people and we start to get our eyes on institutions and we start to get our eyes on other things instead of our eyes upon the Lord, then our faith begins to waver. And I want to share with your brothers and sisters, you all have a tremendous effect upon my life. And I have an effect upon your life. When one of you comes up and says, I just want you to know what Christ is doing in my life. I just got a tape from a friend. He, he's, it's really wild. He, he, he makes a tape. And it's just like you're carrying on a conversation with him, only it's all a monologue. And he was just sharing about some things that God had done in his life as we interacted together a few years ago. And he was sharing with me how the Holy Spirit was continuing to build on those things. When you're giving out that much, you're kind of empty inside. It's just the reality. We're human beings. And as he was sharing and confessing his faith and talking about the reality of Jesus it was like he was just pouring living water into me in a way it was like he was just refreshing me giving me a cold drink after a very hot afternoon we have tremendous impact upon one another and I want us all to realize that that's why we need to care for one another that's why encouragement is so important and your life will be meaningful if you're the kind of a person that builds up other people's faith. I want to challenge you this morning. Will you commit your life to being a person who builds up other people's faith? I promise you as you grow older, that will never be a value system you'll be sorry for. You'll never be sorry that you invest your life in building up other people's faith. And other people will invest their life into building up your faith. The second principle he talks about here is this and pray by the Holy Spirit's power. You know, I find that that's one of the hardest disciplines for us to be able to maintain. How about you? In my own life, I can study God's Word. I just, I just love to study the Word of God. It's kind of what my natural gift is in the Spirit. And I love to spend hours in the Word of God. But I don't know about you, as soon as I begin to pray, my mind shifts into neutral. Anybody have that problem? In other words, you're really, you're really, and I can really identify with the disciples. Remember what the Lord says, now watch and pray. Remember that? At the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, now watch and pray. And the, and the Lord went and he prayed. I mean, he sweat great drops of blood. He really prayed. One of the most fervent prayers that's ever been uttered. But the disciples were asleep. And I often find that's exactly, I really identify with them. And the Lord comes back and says, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Have you ever found that? I, I repeat that again and again and again. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And that's where we need to really build one another up as well. Because it takes a tremendous miracle, a gift from the Spirit, a spiritual work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to become a praying people. The third thing we need to do is to keep ourselves in God's love. You know, usually we think about the fact that we're just safe in God's love, and there's one sense in which we are safe in God's love. In fact, the book begins 
talking about those who are called the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. So there's a very strong security in the New Testament about the fact that you are in the love of God. But James, there's another balance here, and Judah's bringing out here, that we have a responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God. You say, what does that mean? It means that we have a, have a responsibility to decide in our heart with our will that we're going to love the Lord. Now, it's the Spirit of God that works within us. That's the divine side. But you are a person. You are a person, and I'm a person. And our decisions are significant, and you can make a decision, I'm really not going to love God very much today. In fact, in John 15, the Lord Jesus said this, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now that really calls me up short. I find that it's easy for me to think about love as singing to the Lord. And if the music's really pretty, then I have good feelings. And I say, oh Lord, I'm so in love with you today. But what I find, what the Lord does, is He kind of taps me on the shoulder at the time. He says, listen, you've got to obey me. And that's where the rub comes, doesn't it? You see, what Jude is talking about is the fact that many of the believers were being tempted to disobey the Lord, specifically in the area of sexual relationships. The false teaching was rampant in the, church, in the, church, the churches that Jude was writing to. It's all right. And by the way, that's the temptation of our society. And it's a rampant, terrible temptation that is racking the church of God. And what Jesus said is you can come on Sunday morning and you can sing all the songs and you can express all this supposed love for the Savior. But if you're immoral in your thought life and you're not committing it to the Lord, you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to deal with that, you're not growing, then it's a farce. You're not in the love of God. And it doesn't mean that you're out of God's family. But it means that you have entered a danger zone and there can be great judgment. The wages of sin is death. In fact, the greatest evil, the greatest judgment, I mean, is for God just to let us do what we want to do. In other words, just to let us walk out and start following our passions, start living for our lusts. And when we do that, we destroy ourselves. Now, the fourth thing we need to do, number one, we need to build up one another's faith. Second of all, we need to pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not difficult things, simple things, but disciplines that we need to be involved in every day. The third thing is we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. The fourth thing is this, we need to be eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ to return. That's our hope. And that's really convicting to me. Are we, I, I find that as American believers, and I, I very much feel this in my own heart, that I get very comfortable right here. How about you? You get very, very comfortable right here at home. And we have our nice, beautiful life. You know, we have nice family. We have a nice environment. You're nice people to be around. And yet we can get very comfortable and forget that we're just sojourners. We must never forget that. That we're just sojourners. We're just traveling. This world is a cursed world under the judgment of God. And only those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to get off the planet alive. That's a very sober thing for us to realize. And we need to be longing for the day when Jesus Christ will return, when he will set things right. You know, I think one of the times that we really appreciate the reality that he's coming back 
is when injustice is done to us. In other words, when we're really hurt and it's not right, when the injustice of the world comes right down upon us and we know things are not right, and then we can long for a Savior who will return and set all things right. And you, we need to be a people in the midst of this world as we move toward the end of time, more and more people are going to say, he's not coming back. You don't need to expect him to come back. It's just, a, it's, just a fa it's just a fable. It's just a fairy tale. And I find those thoughts go through my own mind. And as we grow older, contrary than we might assume, as we draw closer to the time when just from a natural process we're going to die, we tend to have our faith become weaker rather than having it become stronger. Are we waiting for the Savior to come back? Jude counseled them to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us eternal life. It says we need to be merciful to those who doubt. We need to snatch others from the fire and save them. To others we need to show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Let me just say this. As we think about a ministry of reconciliation, we reach out not to judge, but to love and to forgive. We need to be a healing community. We need to be a community that hates drunkenness, but loves those who are drunkards because we believe that we have a place where they can find complete healing. We need to hate sexual immorality, but we need to be a place where prostitutes can come, and they, and they through the power of Christ, can rise up above those things. Jude talks about the fact that we need to snatch people from the fire. You see, as we talk about judgment, it's very easy. In fact, it just, I cringe when I hear certain pastors speaking about judgment. It's almost like they enjoy it. It's almost like they just enjoy whipping God's people. And I just want to express to you that that is not what the book of Jude is doing. The book of Jude is like a, is like a very loving father who sees his children tripping haphazardly towards hazardous explosive areas and he's yelling at them please be warned it's dangerous and he talks about the need to lovingly snatch people away from that but I want to close with this statement today you might feel that things are totally out of control and at times I feel that way and sometimes you have the Elijah complex you feel like nobody's serving the Lord but me and the Lord comes back, wait a minute, there's still 5,000 or 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And that's why we need to close with these words. The most stirring, probably the most stirring doxology in all the New Testament. He says this, To him who is able to keep us from falling, to keep you from falling. And that's the God that we're worshiping this morning. The God who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault. In other words, brothers and sisters, we have a God this morning who's able to keep us from falling into the kind of dangers that we've been talking about. We have a God who's going to present us at the heavenly throne room without fault and without blemish, with great joy. It says to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Brethren and sisters, what is Jude closing with? He's saying, listen, there is going to come a day when there's going to be a gigantic heavenly celebration. The music is going to be more beautiful than you've ever heard. The joy is going to be inexpressible and we're going to be there. That's what we're waiting for. And why are we going to be there? 
because we toughed it out, because we legally raised ourselves up and became a righteous person? No. Are we going to be there because we flippantly just lived our life in freedom and licentiousness and libertinism? No. There is going to be a special group who listen to the kind of things we've talked about today, who faithfully respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and one day, like Ephesians 5 says, they're presented to Christ as a bride without blemish. Now, only the blood of Christ is a spiritual cleanser that can cleanse our lives whiter than snow. But that's a reality. And at one day, many of you in this room will be presented before Christ without blemish. If you've never begun that relationship with Christ, if you've never begun that initial choice of faith, why don't you do that now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Heavenly Father is the God who's able to keep us from falling. And Father, we confess that as we live in a world that's so full of anti-biblical things and anti-God sentiments, we desperately need you as our Heavenly Father to be the one who can keep us from falling. And yet, Father, as we learn to rest in your arms, as we learn to depend upon your faithfulness, as we learn to focus on what the Scriptures teach us about who you are and what, we're, what you've done, you give us that tremendous gift of joy. And we do start to see tremendous changes taking place in our life morally not by our own strength and not through manipulative techniques, but by the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit, your presence living in our heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this precious group of beloved people, people that have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'd ask you that we would not become weary in well-doing, I'd ask you that our eyes would not be upon the inconsistencies of people around us. But I pray, Father, that you would use what we've talked about this morning to focus our eyes upon the reality of the Christ as revealed through the holy apostles. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would depend upon you, the one who is able to keep us from falling. We pray that we'll devote our lives to praising you as the all-powerful, the all-wise, the God who deserves all honor and praise. 